Our uh, scripture today is uh, written in Daniel. It's in two sections of Daniel's. Uh, Daniel's uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and chapter se- uh, 1, 17 through, verse two, through chapter 2, verse 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed his uh, vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the the king commanded Ashpenazah, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, lean, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a day of portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. There were t- they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Then in chapter in verse 17, it says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of, of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King uh, Cyrus. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. You may be seated. I'm looking forward to making our way further into the book of Daniel. Uh, But let's start this off with, with some prayer. God, I am grateful to be here with this congregation, prepared to study and learn what your word has for us today. 
May this message be a message that better equips us to be more like Christ and allows us to go through our week understanding where we relate to you and what we need to do to become more like Christ. I pray that you are glorified in, the, in all of this and that the focus is on what you have for us today. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> a bit of a strange uh, breakdown of verses. We stopped in the middle of kind of a the story in chapter 2. We spilled into chapter 2. We skipped a chunk in Daniel chapter 1. Um, but there's a reason for that. And I can't help but envision all of this portion we just read as a movie. So uh, the movie might go something like this. There's a remote hut on a hill, and in Aramaic, the words pop up saying, Babylon 540 BC. An eight-year-old girl scurries up the steps and opens the door. Inside the hut, there's a weathered man, long beard, dirty, and um, he's late in years, and he's tending over a pot of, of stew over a fire. The girl sits on the ground, crosses her legs, and looks up to the man and says, Rabbi, please tell me again of the stories of the king's beasts and dreams. Her words are in Hebrew, but since most of us don't speak Hebrew, we have the benefit of our Aramaic subtitles. And as the man quietly portions out a bowl of cholent and hands her a piece of bread, at this point, there's been silence. Five minutes. He's just been working you know, very, you can tell he just has a wisdom about him. There's something going on, and the girl's eagerly waiting to hear her story. He sits down and exhales deeply, and in Hebrew says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. As the king, uh, or as the girl eats the stew, the man tells of the capture of Judah to this girl. We're watching this movie the whole time, all the dialogue is in Aramaic subtitles. Then his story progresses, and suddenly, of course, we're going from narration to the actual movie we're here to see. It jumps into the scene, and there's King Nebuchadnezzar pacing in his royal court. Surrounded by uh, many of his wise men, um, and there are, there are Chaldeans there, as the Hebrew man continues to narrate the words of Daniel 2 through 3, and we read in our subtitles, uh, we're going to read, let me read here, uh, the words the narrator would be saying, the, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Boom. The subtitles drop off, and suddenly it converts to our native Aramaic language, where in verse 4, in Aramaic, we hear, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The movie goes on in Aramaic. We watch the rest of it in our native language. Then, of course, there's an outro back to the man and the girl telling the story, and he's back to talking in Hebrew. And then, of course, in a good movie, we're going to find out the old man was Daniel telling the story all along. The last time I preached, I mentioned um, and I positioned that the changes in language in the book of Daniel from Hebrew to Aramaic back to Hebrew is an intentional literary device used by Daniel. And um, uh, in Daniel 1, 1 through 2, 4, so in that middle of the verse when it says, and in Aramaic, and then it trans transitions to Aramaic, that portion, that first uh, chapter and a few verses is our Hebrew prologue to part one of an Aramaic book of Daniel. 
So he, we have a Hebrew prologue. So what we just read was the Hebrew prologue. But then in chapter 7 of Daniel, we will have an Aramaic prologue to a Hebrew part 2 of Daniel. So we're, we're gonna, it's going to continue into Aramaic, but in chapter 7, it's the last Aramaic chapter. And that in chapter in its entirety is going to be our prologue for the second half of Daniel, which is then in Hebrew. We're going to be focusing today on our prologue, and specifically we'll be focusing on chapter 1, verse 7, and then 17 through 21. Um, and as we kind of work our way through this prologue, we're going to learn of geographic setting, timeline, characters, all, all of the things that will make up the first half of Daniel. But more importantly, even the prologue tells us of the nature of God. It tells us also of the main theme of the entire book. If you remember, I told us our main theme of the book of Daniel is that the kings of earth are suffering, our salvation, and all of history bow before the authority of God. And this main theme is inescapable. In our prologue, it's everywhere. In the book of Daniel, it's everywhere. The sovereignty of God is unavoidable. In Daniel's prologue, we get to verse 2, and we already see it. Who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? God did. God did. And um, if you have an NIV, you may see the word delivered instead of gave. And um, the, the Hebrew word there is Natan. It's the word we get the name Nathan from, or Nathaniel, means gift of God. I would say uh, it's both are, are absolutely accurate. Gave, as in uh, the ESV, and, and uh, delivered, as in the NIV. But I believe the conveyance of a gift, something unearned by Nebuchadnezzar, is um, what is intentionally conveyed here with the word gave. There is no credit to be given to Nebuchadnezzar for the conquering of Judah. They were besieging it, and then God gave Judah into the, to Nebuchadnezzar's hands. But even further, we don't even need to read the whole sentence of Daniel 1-2 to see this theme of sovereignty. In fact, we actually see it just a few words in, and we see uh, in one word we get... Um, we get that Daniel is exalting God above Nebuchadnezzar, above the Chaldeans, above Jehoiakim, and himself, all summed up in one word. And that's the word Lord um, in, in verse 2. The word Lord has a capital L, but lowercase o-r-d. And those of you who have been worshiping with us for a while will know we use we often in our scripture reading and when especially Pastor Nick has been preaching through um, Genesis and Exodus, we use the word Yahweh um, when you see the capital L and the low, smaller but still capital O-R-D. That's the most common use of reference to the Lord in the Old Testament. But in, and in Jeremiah's telling of the of these same events, if you were to read Jeremiah and read about the events of the transference or of the capture of Judah, you would see the word Yahweh. That Yahweh um, gave the the tribe of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel doesn't use that. Instead, Daniel uses Adonai. Yahweh and Adonai are both names for God and have deep complexity. But in the context of scripture, we see that Yahweh is a name meaning self-existent. It is a name of an unsearchable creator of the cosmos. And Adonai is a name of authority. It is in the name of kingship. If you remember, uh, we have Pharaoh's 
uh, Pharaoh giving over his household, the rulership, over to Joseph. It says he adorned Joseph, his household. So he gave authority, he gave that, that rulership. So Jeremiah, in using the more common Yahweh, is telling of the exile, but Daniel is emphasizing God's place as king of kings over Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings who gave Judah to Babylon. So this theme, you're going to hear it over and over. The sovereignty of God is from beginning to end. And it's even in the word um, Adonai chosen. Um, Adonai is just not nearly as commonly used, and Daniel is being absolutely intentional with his word choice. In this prologue, um, having, now having Nebuchadnezzar put in his place, knowing where Nebuchadnezzar stands, as we read through this, um, we, uh, we go on to read a lot of details about, uh, about various characters. In order of hierarchy, we have Nebuchadnezzar, we have Ashpenaz, we have the Chaldeans, then we have these young men of Judah. Of these young men, we are then highlighting four of them four of whom were given more information. And we're going to look, spend the rest of our time today focusing on these four men who are given information of. So note, the first thing I'll note is in, verse, uh, in the first seven verses, it talks about the taking of young men from Judah. These are not just our four protagonists here lined out. This is a group of young men that we then later have singled out four of that group. So of these four men, we're going to cover five details. We're going to cover five details, the first of which is we're told, we're given their Hebrew names and their Babylonian names in Daniel 1, 6, and 7. It says, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names, gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. My guess is if I were to ask you who are the four young men of the story of Daniel before this, my guess is you remember them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Why, why is it we remember the Hebrew name of Daniel, but then we remember the Babylonian name for the other three? So I believe, I believe the reason for this is that uh, it's actually Daniel chapter 3 that does it to us. Daniel chapter 3 is the fiery furnace, a very familiar episode, a very specific and familiar scene. And in there, it repeatedly refers to these three others as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You hear it, they, it's by far the most frequent use of their names. Um, actually, after that portion, we really don't hear much of them. So between a memorable passage in scripture, a memorable storyline, a fiery furnace, and the, this name of being used in repetition, that's what, that's what sticks. But I want to point out that this perspective of the fiery furnace, we'll see this more when eventually we get there, is actually told from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar asking for men. It's Nebuchadnezzar giving out commands, not the perspective of Daniel. Daniel's writing of the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar in these stories. In fact, any time you see Daniel speak of him and his retinue's perspective, he will use the Hebrew names. And he'll use the Babylonian names when it's Daniel, who, or when it's Nebuchadnezzar, or the Babylonian court, or Babylonia in general, that is referring to these men. So let's look at a good example of this. I have for us uh, in Daniel, let's see here, Daniel 2, 17 and 18. If you want to 
stay open there. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So you can see here, like, they're taking the initiative. They're proactively going out and doing this to save these wise men of Babylon. And so in this, Daniel is recounting the tale with their Hebrew names. And we see Daniel take this um, even further, um, even further for himself. Uh, Daniel, in reference to himself, will always, not even just from perspective, but basically only in di- direct quoted dialogue from Babylonians will he ever use Belshazzar. And even then, oftentimes he calls out both names. He, he really um, is emphasizing his name as Daniel, which it's named the book of Daniel as well. So it makes sense why we would remember his Hebrew name. The example of this we can see is actually a little bit further down in the same passage in chapter 2, verse 26. We see the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? So we even see here that Daniel, when the king is summoning and calling for Belshazzar, he didn't say, bring me Daniel. He said, bring me Belshazzar. Um, Daniel still highlighting his Hebrew name. As the author in all of this, this is intentional that he continues from his perspective to use these Hebrew names. He's giving the authority over these men to Adonai, not to Nebuchadnezzar. He's putting back in place the true ruler of these young men. So the names, the names were given names, and they're significant. They're meaningful. And as we go through the book of Daniel, I would encourage you to pay attention to what name was used and, and look at then, wait, from whose perspective are we seeing this? And we'll, we'll see an example in a little bit um, how that plays out and knowing the perspective affects the interpretation of the scripture we're reading. So our second detail of the five is the lineage. We're told that they are um, of noble birth. Um, in three and four, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, uh, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I, I would love to be a youth without blemish, of good appearance. Um, but these clearly are young men, healthy, um, uh, not with disability. They're just, they're healthy young men that are being brought over. And so these four men are of the su- are subset of these young, healthy men of royal lineage. So as being royal lineage, they already would have had a base level of education of some sort. So they would have had the royal court of Judah's education. But keep in mind um, that with this does not mean a clear and truthful understanding of Yahweh. The previous 11 and a half years were ruled in this kingdom were ruled by wicked kings. It was ruled by wicked kings. So you can imagine young men who are growing up their whole lives in a royal court under the best teaching that is overseen by wicked kings. Uh, the education, we can be a little suspect of, of the curriculum. In fact, if you, have, if you have a king who is whoring after other gods, as Jeremiah says, you would expect that they wouldn't... Um, make the law of Moses as the heart of the curriculum, calling out the very things he's done. So these young men have some base level of education, 
um, and, and capabilities. Um, in fact, uh, as they go into what I like to kind of call exilic study abroad in going into this Chaldean training and um, almost collegiate academic system, um, we get our third detail, and we actually see the contrast of the education pre-Chaldeans and what Daniel, Mishael, um, Azariah, and Hananiah end up getting um, with their training. So note, note the, the contrast here. In Daniel 1, 3, and 4 uh, that we just read, it said that the king commanded Ashpenaz, his, um, his chief eunuch. So the king is the one giving the criteria, bring men who meet this criteria. So from the king's perspective and from, Ashpen, and from Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch's perspective, they bring this group of men. They're skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. This could be said of all of them, not just the four. That's how they were selected. These earthly talents are wonderful, but look in verse 6. We then see among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So from this point on, verse 6 on, we're now talking about the subset. So these four men. We're going to jump once again to verse 17 now. As for these four youths, so the four singled out, now knowing it's just them, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So in our second detail, we knew, our, we knew the lineage. But here in the third detail, we're seeing the contrast in education. Although they came with these young Judean men, during this time, um, during this time, or at some point, God chooses to bless them, not just with the earthly knowledge they had in the Judean court, not just the earthly knowledge given learning under the Chaldeans, but also the godly wisdom and knowledge that he bestowed them with. In Daniel particularly, he gives blessing and knowledge of dreams and visions. So we can see there's a contrast here between the knowledge. This is not just continued academic understanding. This isn't God blessing them from undergrad, but God goes in and gives them PhD-level knowledge of the workings of Babylon. No, God is giving him them blessings of wisdom, of knowledge of the things of God. And then uh, our fourth detail here is the character of the four boys. So we're told they are dedicated to God in the stories told in verses 8 through 16, which we did not read. Lord willing, next month we'll get to that and we'll be able to to read through and study um, that portion. But we're told their character um, that they are are faithful men who are willing to say no or take a stand um, in order to obey God. And then our fifth and final detail is given in the timeline of Daniel. So we're going through this prologue. We have our last detail here. It's a timeline. In the beginning, we're told the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which is 605 BC, and then in verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This feels very much like a prologue, right? It has the feel of prologue even beyond the language. So we're given a clear timeline um, from 605 to 539 BC. Within this, though, we're also told of the length of training for these four, these four boys, um, these four young men. They were trained to be trained three years. And um, later, when Nebuchadnezzar calls them, he even says at the end of their training um, that Nebuchadnezzar calls them. So three years take place of education. 
Before we, we move on, I do want to make quick note, though, of another, another set of characters in here, and that's the Chaldeans. So you're going to see the Chaldeans referenced a lot in Daniel. They're not all one group of people. So Chaldeans can reference all of Babylonia, the entire, the entire group, the entire nation, but also the Chaldeans can reference a specific subset and group of people that are the wise men and priests. Um, this, this is like the inner sanctum, the council to, to um, Nebuchadnezzar. And so there's a, when you, you have to be judicious in reading through um, the book of Daniel and being careful not to think that as maybe we see with Pharaoh having magicians next to him and over and over they're coming with him to try to um, undo or, or to mimic the plagues that are being done. In this case, we likely have different men at different times, or we might even be referencing a group, of, a group as a nation as a whole, a nationality. So for our particular passage, though, it's, it's debated as to which is which. And I would say, honestly, it, it, it doesn't make a significant difference to us for this particular passage about whether it's Babylonia in general or a small subset of council. Because we're, we're told they were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So in this case, whether it's the chief, most educated council is the one teaching them all that they know, that would be all that Babylonia has, or whether it's there to be taught all the knowledge of Babylonia, not by those particular men, the, the same is held here in that these young men have the same training as, um, or the best training that, that Babylon has to offer and King Nebuchadnezzar has to offer. Okay, so we looked through our, some details of a prologue. Let's, let's get into some specific verses here. Let's actually get into exposit and see what, what God has for us to take away from verses 17 through 20. So we have, we have the details of these young men. They're equipped with much earthly knowledge and with the wisdom from God. And what is said of them by their pagan enslaver? Let's look at Daniel 1, 19 through 20. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. How much is the value of the wisdom of the Lord? When you compare that to the academic understanding of earthly knowledge, the difference is stark. They're being compared here not just to general knowledge. He's comparing them, Nebuchadnezzar is comparing them relative to the knowledge of the deans of their college, of the college they just came from. These are the best he has. And when he compares them, the difference here, God's wisdom, it's 10 times greater than anything the wise men have to offer. When these four men stand before the king and display their skills, knowledge, and wisdom, to who belongs the glory? It's God. It's God. It's God's wisdom that is given to them, and it is God who gives the wisdom. So, as we, as we go through this passage further, I want us to take away three questions that we challenge ourselves with this week. The first question is, are you pursuing the knowledge and wisdom of God? Proverbs 9, 5 through 6 says, wisdom, um, come, uh, wisdom says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Psalm 1, 1 through 2, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Bereans are commended in Acts for their virtuous study and searching out of scripture. In Acts 17.11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Those of you in high school and college, if you were to ask your parents, uh, would they say you're pursuing the wisdom of God? The faithfulness of your parents is exposing you to the wisdom of God. Perhaps they're, they're pulling you here, they're bringing you here. But are, would they actually say you are pursuing? Are you on the hunt for the wisdom of God? Husbands and wives, would you say your spouse is examining the word with all eagerness daily? Would they say that on God's law you meditate day and night? Retirees, you see more of the world and have been exposed to more scripture than most of us. But that means you should know better than anyone else that the pursuit of God and his wisdom is needed. Are you pursuing the wisdom of God with more vigor and zeal than you did in your youth? The study of the word of God is more than a verse of the day. It's more than just your devotions. Those things are good and have absolute value and a purpose. But the study of the word of God is to dig through scripture so that you might better know your God. If you're uncertain of where to study or how to start studying, I would encourage you to talk to your elders and our deacon and ask how to study. You'll be given plenty of resources and a place to start, but I'd encourage you to get into, actually study and wrestle with scripture. Do you pursue the knowledge and wisdom of God? Our second question we're going to consider this week is, do you bring your wisdom into the world? Does the knowledge and wisdom you gained from your study, from your time here in service, when you're blessed and ministered to, does that make its way into the world? In Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Ephesians tells us, uh, tells us that the spirit, uh, the, sword of the, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Hebrews tells us that it is a double-edged sword that pierces until it divides soul and spirit. Are you going into battle every day leaving your sword at home? Do you bring his wisdom in the world with you? I know many times I've thought I don't work in a Christian-friendly environment. If I talk about God in certain ways, uh, I'm going to get an HR call. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be done. But I think the example being set so far by Daniel as a slave in a pagan court, using the wisdom of God to serve the king to the best of his ability— is a great example. We have the ability to use the wisdom gained from our study and from the knowledge of God to enhance our ability to work, not just, not just um, tell people of the gospel, not just to evangelize, absolutely to do that, but also to work. The wisdom of God is there so that it might be said of us that we are 10 times, the knowledge and wisdom we have is 10 times greater than all of that in the workplace. And because to that, God's glory is given. To God, glory is given. 
Our third and our final question to consider is what do you do when the world praises you? So you've studied the word of God. You're pursuing it. You're digging daily. It affects the way you interact with coworkers. It affects the way you interact with your family. And from it comes praise. What do you do with it? I think actually Daniel is setting a great model for us. What have we seen so far in Daniel writing about his own capabilities? Right? If I were to write a letter and or write, write down my own capabilities, being greater than all the kingdom, right, my, my head wouldn't fit through the door. But what does Daniel do? He started this whole book off by saying Adonai. He is putting himself in his place, and he's putting God where he belongs, up above the kings of the earth. He knows where he belongs and to whom, to who belongs the glory and who God gave those gifts is Daniel. But it's not Daniel's efforts. It's not his eagerness. It's not his learning. It's not his understanding. It is God's understanding given to Daniel. So I think Daniel's setting a great example. And on a, on a earthly, on a personal example, I would say, look at your pastors. When you, uh, we, we have a loving church. We have a very kind and loving church. And I can tell you the last time I preached up here, I thought, oh no, the scariest part might be afterwards when people talk to me about this. Please don't praise me. Please don't praise me. Please don't give me encouragement, right? And it's this natural instinct to want to be focused on God, not on my skills, not on my detriments, any of that. And and the desire is to focus on God. And I think our pastors, Nick and Pastor, uh, uh, Pastor Nick and Pastor Pete are focusing in the, the right way on God. If you've ever encouraged your pastor after a sermon saying, this message really helped me, this is what I needed, you blessed us today, you give them encouragement, what do they say? They say, praise God. They are doing an example of holding up a mirror when you try to give them glory and give the appropriate person praise. It is God's message from God's word given to you. And to that, God is assigned the glory. Now, I don't want to discourage any of us from sharing and giving kind words. In fact, not at all. Continue to encourage and bless your pastors. But I would say the perspective should be rejoice in that, that glory has been given this day to God for the skills and gifts that God has bestowed to our pastors and the skills and gifts that God has bestowed to others. And when you, in your places of work and the places of skill and capability, where you're using the wisdom you've gained from God, and you start to receive recognition, I ask that you make sure your heart is prepared for that moment. You know the presentation you're going into is good. You've done the work. You've been diligent. You've worked as unto the Lord. When the praise comes, is your heart ready to reflect and say, Adonai? It is God's gifts. It is God's sovereignty that gives us these gifts. When, when the world praises you, what do you do with it? Where is your heart at? When we consider these three, these three questions, I don't know about you, but the initial instinct might be to say, is it really fair to compare me to three men who are specifically called out by Daniel as being gifted by God? I'm not in the Bible as specifically gifted. Uh, I'd argue we actually have it far better. Yes, Daniel has been gifted and blessed. These three other young men are gifted and blessed. But when you think about this, uh, brothers and sisters, we have the sacrifice of the Christ. We have the ascension, and we have the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. When you sit down to study the word of God, you are not a student in a foreign land reading a foreign language. 
No, uh, instead you are indwelt by the very one who conveyed the word you're studying. Daniel was blessed with the ability to prophesy of the coming of the Son of Man. But we have more knowledge of the Son of Man than Daniel does because we have the book of Daniel and we have the Gospels, we have Revelation and all of Scripture. These men were slaves in Nebuchadnezzar's court, but as Romans 6.18 tells us, we are slaves to righteousness. Comparing ourselves to Daniel, it's unfair for Daniel. It's unfair for Daniel. We have been blessed with so much. We should be comparing the expectation set of someone specifically gifted in a foreign world, because that is all of us. That is all of us every day. What do you do when the world praises you? What do you do when it comes to work or to whatever particular Babylonian court God has put you in? What are you bringing? Are you bringing the wisdom and knowledge of God? And it all starts with, are you pursuing God? Not having God just put before you, are you pursuing him? Eager, hungry, voracious for what God has to tell us in his word. I'd encourage us, study God's word, take his word into the world, and give all glory to Adonai. We're going to end, uh, uh, we're going to end by turning to two passages. We're going to look first at Daniel, or excuse me, James chapter 1. Please turn with me. James 1, verses 16 through 18. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Lastly, I'm going to turn us to 1 Corinthians 1. 26 through 31. I encourage you uh, to turn there with me so that your heart can be where mine is um, as we read this together and go into prayer. I'm, I'm truly looking forward to progressing through Daniel. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous that you all will maybe get tired of hearing. I hope you don't of the sovereignty of God. It is going to continue. It's just going to continue that God is above all of this. And I think uh, when it, we consider our gifts and the gifting, uh, my heart was struck with this particular passage, 1 Corinthians 26 through 31. And I hope that if anything shapes your heart as you go through this week and consider the questions I've put forth, that this passage is what re, reframes it and reorient, reorients it so that you understand the Adonai who is above us all. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Let's pray. Adonai, we thank you. We thank you for the gifts you gave Daniel. We thank you for the model that Daniel sets for us, that we have these four young men who take stands for their faith in a pagan and fallen world. Lord, we stand in a pagan and fallen world, and we often claim the victim. We claim how rough it is for us as Christians. We might even claim how the world's degrading and and these various elements of the world, Lord. But none of that should change the standing of us before you. We have a responsibility to you, Lord, and that is to praise you and worship you and glorify you. And it is not just a responsibility, but it is a blessing, Lord. I pray that we feel that blessing this week, that we give all glory to you, that we do everything to our full capabilities because the consequences of that is your glory. I pray that as we sing and as we uh, close our time in worship, as we go through the remaining sacraments, Lord, I pray that you allow it all to be to your glory, not for the gifts of man, but for the gifts blessed to us by you. To you be all glory, praise, and honor. In your son's name I pray. Amen.